0: (laughs) Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And uh, we're all here together today, in part thanks to the generous donations to the salon from Derek K., Jeffrey S., Antoine L., and Samuel G. And I thank you one and all for helping to keep these podcasts winging their way through cyberspace to our psychedelic friends throughout the world. And uh, as another semi-underground group says, we are legion. (laughs) Well, uh, today we're going to get to listen to one of the Palenque Norte lectures that were recorded at this year's recent Burning Man Festival. Now, there are a lot of people to thank for their work in producing these talks this year. To begin with, there are all of the wonderful burners who make up Camp Soft Landing and who have hosted these lectures for many years now. And, of course, all of the people who work directly on the lectures by... Putting up the tent, providing a sound system, recruiting the speakers, and, well, a dozen other chores that need to take place to pull off a major lecture series in the middle of not only a desert, but <laughs> in the middle of the world's biggest party, where there are countless other attractions where they could be spending their time. In particular, I'd like to thank Frank Nucio. For yet another year, it is Frank who has taken the time and trouble to record these talks for us. And having done this myself a few times, I have a very good understanding of how difficult it can be to not only be present to make these recordings, but also how challenging it can sometimes be to do so in the middle of a whiteout or other uh, emergency that (laughs) that happens at Burning Man. Frank, as they say in Texas, you're a good hand. And in Texas, where I'm still licensed to practice law, well, there's no higher praise than that. So thanks a million, Frank. And Over the years, there will be literally millions of other people who are saying the same thing to themselves each time they hear one of your precious Palenque Norte recordings. So, uh, of the nearly 30 talks that were given this year, which one do you think that I selected as the first one for us to listen in on today? (laughs) Well, I guess that's really not much of a challenge, since you've already seen both the title of the talk and the name of the speaker. And while I've never met Dr. Sue myself, From listening to him in this talk, I, well, I find him to be one of the most forthright and clear-thinking medical professionals that I've ever come across. My guess is that you're going to feel the same way after listening to him. It isn't just the work that he's doing, but it's also his personal story that has captivated me. However, I'll let you decide that for yourself. Now, uh, as you listen to this talk, my guess is that there are going to be a few places where you would like to ask a question or add a thought of your own. Well, guess what? Tomorrow night, that's Monday, October 8th, 2018, at 6.30 PM Pacific Time, I'm going to begin the first of the weekly live psychedelic salon gatherings. And our guest will be Dr. David Nichols, the co-founder of the Hefter Research Institute, who will be with us to carry on this discussion about the future of psychedelic clinics. So now, coming to us from the dusty playa at the 2018 Burning Man Festival, is Dr. Will Sue to pass along a few of his ideas about the future of psychedelic clinics.
1: Are we all set? Cool. Um, Thanks for coming. Um, So the the title of the talk is Psychedelic Clinics on the Horizon, which... It's really, it's an exciting time to talk about this, let's this this plane, um, you guys can hear me, right? So it's an exciting time because, you know, we really are about a year or less away, depending, uh, um, you know, how you look at things in terms of having a legal, psychedelic MDMA clinics, if you considered MDMA a psychedelic. Um, but anyway, just a clinic having MDMA, It's really exciting. Um, and you know, so the fact that I'm even giving this talk and people are talking about the legal clinics is really, really, um, really cool. Um, so Emily Williams, who is gonna give the talk with me, she's a, a psychiatrist in the Bay Area. Unfortunately, I uh, couldn't make it last minute today, since, so um, I'll be doing the talk. Um, and just to give a little bit of a background so you guys know where I'm coming from and a little bit about me. My name is Will Sioux. I'm a, a psychiatrist based in New York City. Um, I went both to medical school, so I have an MD, and I went, have a PhD in immunology. Um, I was very, very interested in science before, and so I got that background as well. Um, and I'm part of the MDMA uh, for PTSD clinical trials at the University of Connecticut. So I'm a faculty member, a professor at the University of Connecticut, I also have a faculty appointment at uh, New York University through um, um, in separate interests. A um, little bit more about, do we happen to have any psychologists here? If you do raise your hand, I'd, I'd be curious, okay, cool, um, great, I think it'll, It'll. It'll. Hopefully, we would love your input on, on some of the items. Um, uh, that i'm going to talk about um, so one thing i like to talk about is a little bit about background about who i am in my education and see why and so um so you know my, my family's from central america from nicaragua my 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 grandfathers are from china my parents immigrated to, to the united states in the 70s when the um the war with the rebels in contra and the guy who's become the president and, and dictator in nicaragua right now was kind of coming into power There was also a bit, very big earthquake in the 70s which. Um, also led them to flee the country. Um, I'm the first in my family to go to college. Um, my mom didn't even finish junior high school in Nicaragua. Um, through that, though, I ended up uh, getting kind of a traditional education. I went to college in California. Um, I went to medical school at UCLA. I ended up getting my PhD from Oxford in England, um, and I ended up doing my psychiatry training at Harvard Medical School. And I know that's a lot of a lot of institutions, and I the only reason I actually like mentioning the institutions is because I think they have almost nothing to do. Uh, what I learned at those institutions have very little to do with psychedelic healing and I think real healing um, and if anything, they put me behind in many ways um, and it's kind of learning through that process to find my own healing that I really started understanding what it is to heal um, from from trauma. And I use the word trauma very, very uh broadly. Um, but really the Western world requires us right now to really get this training to be involved in um, for the legal uh, medical Western healing. Um, so really you know the, the you know my you know the, the purpose of this talk is really to talk about you know i wanted to share my thoughts and my ideas about these psych- psychedelic clinics that are going to be opening up um, and i wanted to share also my hopes for them but i think the most important part for myself is to talk about my concerns about you know things that problems that may come up and um perhaps hurdles that we're going to look at because even though it's a, it's a relatively tight-knit community and everyone's been in a very um you know, a generally positive trajectory. I mean, this is going to be real. This is going to be work. This is going to be organizations and and money, and and there's going to be problems that come up. Um, you know, the reason I was asking if there's any psychologists in the room is because you know traditionally psychologists and psychiatrists don't work together, right? I mean, we have separate training, we don't interact very much during our training. Um, there's hierarchy within Western medicine, and a lot of what the psychedelic movement is not about. And so, since this is going to be new territory, I actually want to hear about. Um, you know what are some problems that other people think that we're going to run into and maybe by learning more about this you know we can help prevent some of the issues so obviously part of this is maybe uh doing this talk was selfish on my end wanting to hear from people and 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 get better ideas from you all um so with that um you know so i've kind of basically listed some of the issues that i've thought about um and i I thought there's about six that i can see up here and i'll talk about each one of them and Um, You know, when Emily and I, as I had mentioned to those who were here um, right on time, uh, Emily Williams was supposed to do this talk with me, she can't make it, Um, we were obviously planning for about 15 to 20 minutes a piece and then having it be Q&A, so I'm just going to talk, if you want to ask questions in the middle of this, raise your hand, we can have it really be a discussion, Um, so that'll start. Um, And the other thing I actually want to make sure to, to be careful and mention is that um, I'm, I, even though I am a psychiatrist on the, one of the MAPS studies, I am not an employee of MAPS and I'm not speaking on behalf of MAPS. I, I happen to think that the people who work with MAPS, Rick is a good friend of mine, would probably agree with many of the things I say, but I just want to make it clear that I'm not speaking on behalf of MAPS. Um, so, yeah, so, uh, you know, I, I, in addition to the MAP studies, I have a private practice in New York City. I'm also an uh, emergency room psychiatrist at Bellevue Hospital in New York. Um, and I'm, I'm a psychiatrist that's maybe not traditional in many ways, and... I focused really on psychotherapy. I, I found out very early on in the psychedelic, or sorry, very early on in my training as a first year resident in psychiatry, that essentially our, our medicines don't work. Um, you know, Some of the best studies we have is on antidepressants for depression. Um, you know, They work about a third of the time, and placebo works about 20% of the time. So, so basically, all, one of our best medicines works about 10% better than placebo. And honestly, like it is funny, but the reality is, like this was really it was depressing as a young psychiatrist to co- go into a field. I was feeling really depressed about the situation, and I'm like, I can't even get healing from the field that I'm going into. And again, I, I, I trained at Harvard Medical School, and I was really depressed, and to the point where I was suicidal, and I couldn't even get healing that was that was helpful to me. And I was like, we're we're pretty fucked, and it was it really threw me into a, a deep depression. I ended up thinking about dropping out. I applied to management consulting companies like Bain and McKinsey. I got a job, and I luckily I decided not to take it. But it really threw me into this place of really figuring out what the heck I was going to do with my life. So um, at that time, you guys see I'm obviously at Burning Man, and I have long hair, and I have piercings. Four years ago, so when I was 34 years old, I had smoked pot five times in my life. I had not touched a psychedelic. You know, I was raised by uh, Nicaraguan immigrants who um, uh, were Catholic, and then when I was seven, my mom converted to being Jehovah's Witness, so there was no way in hell I was even thinking about taking a drug, even when my friends were doing it, because it was ingrained in my mind that I was going to go to hell if I did this. So, uh, obviously things have changed. This is being recorded, it's going to be posted, so I'm not going to admit to any psychedelic Illegal psychedelics, because I'm not saying I've done it. Um, you know, we've got medical licenses and stuff that we have to talk about. Maybe, um, you know, but I have done ayahuasca. It was done in Peru, um, so <laughs> it's legal. And I actually got to take MDMA legally about a year ago through the MDMA uh, training um, that MAPS is doing. Legally, they they have a side study, a phase two clinical trial for that they're having the therapists undergo, so that we can understand. Um, the process a little better so that we can also talk about it, because now I can say I took MDMA and not, you know, lose my medical license. Um, so, um, so the first thing that I think about here, uh, or that I wrote down to talk about, is what happens when these, you know, what are these clinics going to look like? Traditionally I've mostly worked at um, academic institutions, um, so are these clinics going to be in academia, or are they going to be in the private sector? Um, you know, what happens when things get privatized and capitalism and money moved in? Like, who's going to be able to afford and pay for this care? Especially in the beginning, there's a limited way, at least with the MDMA clinics, that this is going to open up. Um, you know, MAPS have this program called Expanded Access, or sorry, they're going to be applying for this state uh, status of Expanded Access through the FDA, which will allow um, MDMA to be prescribed and perhaps have uh, private clinics open up even before MDMA is rescheduled. Um, I won't we'll go into the details of what expanded access is, but we're around a year away from that potentially happening. But really it has to be, these clinics are only going to be able to be opened by psychiatrists and collaborations with psychiatrists who have the training who can prescribe MDMA. And I can't remember what the exact number is, it's around 80 or 90 right now in the nation that are working on these phase 2 and 3 clinical trials. So really if you take the 80 people, there's like 12 different sites or so across the country you're talking five psychiatrists or so per city at most like in new york san francisco who are going to have this training um and a lot of psychologists right half of them i don't even know if we're even going to even have the time or the interest to open legal psychedelic clinics and i bring this up because all of a sudden you're going to have a small number of people who are going to be at the forefront of the initial clinics and you know in terms of affordability like i'm in new york city say there's three of these clinics why wouldn't I charge $100,000 for you know, a 12-week treatment? I'm not saying I'm going to do that, but right there's going to be this temptation of like, you know, you know uh, it's, it's a small market, essentially, and I see not like this is, and so that's one of the things that I think about. How are we going to make this treatment affordable to, to a lot of people? You know, I was calculating, you know, I'm a psychiatrist, uh, the New York City rate, kind of an entry-level psychiatrist in a private practice, is going to charge you about $350 an hour for per th- per hour for um, per, per, uh, treatment hour. A psychologist is going to be more on the level of maybe 100 to 150, but many of them charge 200 an hour. You know, the, the even the MDMA trial we're doing a 12 week um, trial. There's going to be three MDMA sessions per. Um, per month, sorry, three, three MDMA treatments per 12-week sessions. So you're talking eight three-hour sessions plus an hour, hour and a half of therapy every other week. You're talking, and then there's preparation so if You're talking about 60 uh, sixty hours or so. I'm at, say, $350 an hour. The psychologist I work with is, say, at two or 250. That's somewhere around, depending what people are charging, you know, fifteen to $20,000 for a 12-week treatment. I couldn't even afford that right now. You know, and it's not something a lot of people are talking about, but the reality is either a lot of people are gonna discount what they're doing, or it's gonna be unaffordable to the vast majority of people right now. Um, and I'm, I'm not saying I have a solution to this, but you know, again, this is supposed to be a discussion. If you guys have any ideas, please share them. And the reality is like, they don't train, the, the doctors are horrible managers of money, like they don't train us how to handle money, how to start businesses, etc. And all of a sudden, we're going to be part of these group group clinics, essentially. And so what do we do there? Again, I'm I'm hoping no one came here to get answers and to to think that this is going to be problem-free and it's going to be great. Uh, The point is to like just encourage discussion and thought around these things. Um, And the, the second point that I wrote down is really one that I talked about in the beginning. So all of a sudden, you're going to have medical doctors and psychologists working together. We do not have any. Very. I mean, I literally never worked with a psychologist during my psychiatric training so far, um, and and so that's one one thought. And you know, there's unfortunately in mental health treatment, just like in any other field, there's a lot of hierarchy. There's a lot of baloney that and that ends up um, being a part of this. And there is tension. There are um, issues between psychologists and psychiatrists. You know, one of the ones that we often you know, that I can think of in terms of psychedelics and psychiatry. Is that honestly? Like I hear walking around here, walking around festivals, about how horrible Western medicine is, how we like toxify people with our medicines, about how you know psychiatrists are with, with expletives all the time. I see people look at me; they don't think I'm a psychiatrist, but it, it, it's honestly kind of tough to hear all these like conversations. And I'm honestly um, pretty in, in significant agreement with most of them. I do think we do some very horrible things, and. Um, so, so you know, but it's tough. to, Like, how do we actually integrate psychiatrists into this? How do we work with Western doctors to try to help understand um, and, and to work with them, right? I mean, psych- psychedelics and are really about building bridges and connections. And you know, how do we we continue to to have, keep the the good things about Western medicine and psychiatry while getting rid of the things that haven't worked so well? Um, the other thing is, you know, I, I do know just working from a lot of with a lot of people and a lot of psychologists that I know that there tends to be some animosity around how much psychiatrists make versus psychologists, right? I'm allowed to do psychotherapy. Really, the first psychoanalyst was Freud, who was a psychiatrist and a doctor. Um, but the reality is, you know, I, I went to quote the best psychiatry training program in the country at Harvard Medical School. And I'll tell you that because if I, if I only did the training that I was meant to do, which is, you know, we, we spend rotations in the inpatient unit, the outpatient clinics prescribing medicines, if I had only done the psychotherapy training that I was required to do by the end of my four year training, literally when I can go out and open my own office, I would have seen about three or four psychotherapy patients total, probably for about a year apiece. And that would have been my psychotherapy training. All of a sudden now I can and I have classmates who went out and opened psychotherapy practice and charged $250, $350, $50, $400 an hour. And you can fill a clinic, quite frankly, because some people think that just because you have an MD, you know what you're doing. Um, and I don't think, I don't agree with that. And so, um, versus my colleagues who are psychologists did in, in the number of lectures, I don't even want to scare you, the number of lectures of psychotherapy that we had, they were not many. And my colleagues who are psychologists, I mean, that's all they did essentially, right? There's tons of didactics, there's tons of, of patients that they see. Quite honestly, the, the, the average psychologist just does much, much better psychotherapy than any psychiatrist ever will. And all of a sudden, but hey, you know, we're getting paid a whole lot more to do it. You know, it, it, it's, it's I'm not going to say it's below me, but it's really, like, I can see why there's tension. It it really does not seem fair, um, even from my end, so, um, so, yeah, (laughs) anyway, I'm I'm seeing some nods also, which I'm happy to see, but, you know, again, it's not like I have a solution to this. How do we, how do we work with this and with the system that we have? Um, the third point that I wanted to talk about is, um, how do we integrate other healing modalities with psychology and psychiatry right i
2: don't know how
1: many how familiar people are here with the mdma therapy one of the things that i found that's very important um which hit me kind of like a ton of bricks when i first went to the first training for mdma for ptsd through maps was when i saw the therapist on video michael and i hofer put their hands on a patient like they were doing body work with a patient honestly it hit, i was like what the fuck are these people doing you're, you're touching someone and all of a sudden they're screaming and releasing trauma i'm like it sounds like um, I was like, they could be sued for this. Like, we, taught, we talk about boundaries and not touching patients, and all of a sudden, they're putting their hands on people and they're talking about, you know, releasing energy and, you know, again I had a very, very traditional education, and I was like, what? Like, what? Like, I'm, I was like, I maybe like made a mistake by coming to this. Now, after kind of being involved with MAPS and the training for about four or five years, it actually seems wrong not to know how to touch a patient in the proper way to do healing. Um, and I'm saying that because if I'd said that to most psychiatrists, they would actually probably disagree or, or they wouldn't see where I'm coming from in terms of really like we need to learn how to do this. Um, you know, and I think that, that honestly, I think that, you know, some amount of healing is going to come through talk therapy, but really some of the healing and um, I know you guys are a crowd that knows that, you know, the body keeps, the body holds traumas in a way that we cannot verbalize. And so if, if say, you even have a group of therapists who have been trained by MAPS um for the mdma work specifically i think we have all like you know the therapists that apply and become um therapists through maps at least have interest in body work but many people don't have the experience to actually do body work and that's talking about people who are kind of in on this and know that this is important let alone the quicker we spread this amongst western psychology and psychiatry we're just not going to have a group of people that knows how to do body work so either a we have to train up a lot more um, licensed therapists and psychiatrists to do body work um, or we need to also work with body workers. I actually prefer the latter I think it would be more fun and new more collaborative to work with with body workers and another type of healers And I think it also has the benefit of it It can be cheaper per hour, which is something that I've kept mindful of if we start working together, you know, say it probably would not work with MDMA and say uh, at least during the MDMA session But maybe we can collaborate with body workers to see the patient after either after the session itself in the weeks after um, you know, I, I do know some people that have opened legal ketamine practices, I have a ketamine psychotherapy practice in New York City, not an infusion clinic with IV, but I give people ketamine lozenges and we do the stuff legally. Um, I think most of you know that ketamine is legal right now. But there's some people who work with ketamine in that they feel like towards the end of the ketamine experience or in the days after the body can be more sensitive and can be healed with body work and so can we then, you know, can I as a psychiatrist or a therapist work with someone with ketamine and then work with a body worker that can see them later in the day or third the next day you know and again that would be a lot cheaper than having to come uh, my, my maybe the only like one-stop shop yeah then, then comes the money issue i mean i talked about that a little bit in the beginning right we're we're really expensive as a healthcare system right now um i don't see that changing anytime in the near future um so Again, and is, is capitalism, is, is privatization really all bad? I actually don't think it is, but, but again, when, especially towards the beginning, when we have a limited um, number of therapists, how do we make sure access um, is available? Um, and are there other ways to, to make um, these things more affordable? You know, I, I came from a very poor family. Um, as I mentioned, my, my family is from, uh, my parents are immigrants from Nicaragua. We had a family of five. My dad raised us. I was surprised when i looked at his taxes like something he 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 made about 25 to thirty thousand dollars a year between when i was growing up and when i left for college so even as a doctor with like a a nice new york salary i don't even know what to do with the money that i even make right now so honestly like if if i open a clinic and i make more money i actually think i'm going to hopefully give back to you know and have low cost care as well because like the reality is i don't you know I i don't even need all the stuff i make right now so um but i know a lot of people are not really thinking that same way and you know i was approached by you know there's some people who describe themselves as health and um, health care venture capital etc that were getting prepared to try to open these clinics and you know the, even when i heard that that healthcare venture capital like that wasn't even a part of the psychedelic really discussion in the last few years it kind of scared me a little bit it's like what, what like what, what's going to happen to psychedelic medicine is it going to become like these you know big privatized clinics i also had to learn in honor for myself though as i heard this that this is probably inevitable and so, you know, before when I first entered medicine, I used to think a lot about, well, I'm gonna be a, a doctor in, you know, in uh, the rough neighborhoods like where I grew up, you know, but am, am I doing myself and I, am I doing other people a disservice by doing only low-cost care? Can I be more effective by opening a for-profit clinic that's gonna charge a lot to some people and I can provide low-cost care to others? And that was really almost like a personal journey that I had to go through because it was, did not feel good to think about accumulating wealth. Um, you know, but I, I through you know more experience, to more through more inter- kind of reflection, through meeting a lot more people in the psychedelic communities, not just therapists, but people who are very successful. I mean, honestly, I'm I'm camped here with, um, we're calling it foam against the machine this year, which is kind of a, a, a camp that was put together by by Dave Bonner from you know Dr. Bonner's Magic Soaps, and and here's an example of you know this is you know which is not a for-profit company. But it's he's really he pushes, you know, this this all one and, and treat your employees like family. You know, and, and some of the things I've heard about him and the company is that you know, there's something like where his salary as the CEO is capped at like five or six times the lowest paid person or something like that. And everyone has zero deductible medical dental vision. So to me, this is like a company that works extremely well, they're very mindful of the environment. So can capitalism actually be, you know, can there be really beautiful capitalism that's helpful to a lot of people? And I actually think the answer to that is yes. And so myself and thinking about opening you know a clinic or a set of clinics myself you know I, I hope and I, and I think I can keep this type of ethos you know because again you can have really really good people with integrity um, just stay in the nonprofit world but really is, is it better for us to actually fill some of these spots and, and allow ourselves to make some money to, to kind of give back and, and that's kind of where I'm at now um, let's see um, the other thing and and this relates to probably some in terms of income disparity and socioeconomic status is how to is in treating people of color So I'm I'm clearly I'm not white I've told you guys about my background Um, but it's no secret that the psychedelic movement the festival scene the Burning Man community is primarily a white community Um, and really when we talk about these plant medicines especially ayahuasca psilocybin these came from places that are not white right and we're essentially going in and really I mean, it's a very complex topic. I'm not going to say we're just going up and screwing, screwing you know things up in these cultures, but, but there are a lot of problems with us going to, to try to heal with plant medicines and ketosis or other places like that. Um, I think there's also good things and benefit that that happen through these uh, relationships. But so really, you know, again, we've been giving the blessing a lot of these plant medicines from these cultures. If we're essentially a white community that's only treating white people in in the Western world, I think you know it's. I stay away from saying things are all good or all bad but at least we need to I think, be mindful of trying to, to act, let everyone access these medicines um, and you know i think that's not just about um, financially making this available to more people um, you know it's not simply saying these you know even if we could open free clinics that provide psychedelic healing it doesn't mean that people of color are going to be come knocking down the door right the, the issues are a lot more complex around what allows someone to come in to do um, and, and be comfortable doing psychedelic healing. So um, you know, I mentioned earlier that I'm a faculty member at, at the University of Connecticut, which is one of the sites that MAPS has sponsored for the MDMA for PTSD work. Um, before about a month or two ago, I was able to say um, that I'm the only non-white psychiatrist that works with MAPS, now I'm one of two. Um, he is also at our site. And our site has what, three, three, five, about six therapists and we are all people of color. Um, Outside of our site, I think, and this is not an exact quote, I'm not talking about MAPs, I'm not speaking for MAPs, is I'm only aware of one of the therapists that MAPs trained who is not white in the rest of the country. Um, And the reason I bring that up is because, you know, again, what do we get to do, what do we have to do to get a person of color in the door into a psychedelic clinic? Right, again, we can put out a sign that says, you know, you're welcome to come but a once you walk in the door if your therapist is white you know there's going to be tension around potential tension around it It may be necessary to be able to relate to your therapist on a racial or ethnic level in order to do good healing work. right set and setting the setting has to do with the person in front of you has to do with the decor all of that you know is it going to be culturally sensitive and i'm not going to pretend i'm an expert on racial and ethnic issues um you know, I see some people of color in here. I know my good friend Nick Powers is is much more um, attuned to those issues. But they are important issues that we need to address. Number two, we need to train more therapists of color. Um, you know, and I, I, I've been talking to Rick in MAPS about how do we increase the number of therapists who even apply, right? Because in, in Rick has said, hey, you know, and I, MAPS is very well intentioned. He says, you know, we can maybe have some percentage of, or commit to a certain number of percentage of the next phase of therapists that's going to to be trained to be MDMA therapists. And the goal is to train about 300 therapists next year for the next phase of MDMA therapy. And he's thrown around a number like, hey, well, why don't we do like 50%? Which would be great if we can do it, but if we can actually get 150 well-trained people of color who really understand psychotherapy and can do the healing work in great, but how do we even get 100? I mean, I don't even know 15 right now that we can get across the country, let alone 150. So it's like, how do we get the word out? How do we get people of color interested in Doing psychedelic training for their psychotherapy training, you know, um, and because you know, there's significant issues there, and you know, and, and even before that stuff, how do we get people or people of color interested in psychedelics in general? Um, because you know, one of, one of the many barriers, for instance, is the legal ramifications for people of color to get caught using illegal substances in this country, right? My my white friends, but you know, my blonde friends, you know, before you know recently we're not going to pro they said they're not going to prosecute um having you know personal amounts of marijuana in new york city but again if you're a blonde white college student getting caught with a little bit of weed you're not going to go to jail but, 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 you know I, I know many people and i know I'm sure people know in the room that if you're, if you're a black man in a park with a small amount of drugs you could very easily end up going to jail for a long time and so you know and, and meaning i bring that up because In terms of just getting people of color legal psychedelic experiences or sorry not legal because right now you know doing ayahuasca in the united states isn't um legal but even if you got you know a group of black people together that wanted to do an ayahuasca you know an an underground ayahuasca retreat in new york city i think there could be a barrier just to do that because if you have to worry about you know potentially you know getting arrested or losing your license etc that's going to be a barrier as well so that's kind of one of the issues that i think about um, and again, please please share your thoughts or or, or ask questions at any time. Um, in terms of
2: okay.
1: yeah, so I mean, one of the things that I've thought about, and Nick and I have actually talked about doing together, is say, can we put a, a video series together, either with Maps or Chuck Runa or one of the other big psychedelic publications, where we interview on video a group of of Black folks that talk about their psychedelic experiences how they got interested what it's done for them or a group of Korean Americans with the same team or a group of Latino Americans so that we can put that out there so that people can relate easier and say hey you know, this guy looks like me this gal reminds me of my family how do I deal with these issues within uh, my culture and so you know I think that's important and you know I'm, I'm saying this also because we like we need help like I'm one person we have one team in the country that's supposed to do this we don't have any paid or you know extra Finances to spend time doing this. It really has to be, I think, a group effort um, with a lot of people, um, people of color. And then, really, like the last major kind of bullet point that I wanted to talk about um, is is integrity, right? And, and what happens when people in our community or healers um, are not acting with integrity? You know. And in, Part of the things I talk, think about is like sexual abuse with shamans, with, with underground therapists that's happening. Unfortunately, I've heard of it happening and I've experienced it actually. Once, about a year ago, I went to Iquitos to spend time. I was going to spend one-on-one with a shaman the entire time and it was like, oh my god, he was highly recommended and you know, I'm going to do so much, you know, learning from this guy. Within five or six days, I come in at the tail end of a six-week retreat. I found out that he had been sleeping with two of the female participants and the, the, the people in the village who were his family members, I speak Spanish and so I was chatting with them. they're like, yeah, he does this all the time, and yeah, this is normal here, and I left after about a week, I was supposed to be there for him, like, I this is absurd, but what do we do, you know, when this is happening either out there in keep those or with legal, I mean, this happens even with therapists, even in this country, so we don't even have to go that far to know that this happens. What happens when this is happening, potentially with um, psychedelic therapists? How do we deal with that? Do we report these people and just get them thrown in jail? I mean, to me, that, I mean, that's the initial kind of um, response, but the reality is it's are about community, how we, you know, these are these are healers who are doing healing work that are hurt themselves. How do we deal with these things when they come up in our community? Um, and, you yeah, know, that's another thing, another kind of topic that I, I think about uh, quite often. Um, I know there's one more thing that I wanted to, to share, um, in terms of doing, doing the work with integrity. Um, it's not coming to mind right now. So, um, We have plenty of time left, like I said, about 45 minutes, so really this is the end of what I wanted to talk about and share with you guys, but I really do want to hear what you guys think about any of the things that i thought about, uh, or uh, just questions or comments that you have separately. But if you want to move closer, please do. Um, Thank you. So I am a therapist and a shamanic practitioner.
2: I'm at the beginning of a four-year, pretty intensive uh, uh, psychotherapy, psychedelic training program, and, uh, you know, all of us who are being trained in my program uh, have been through body work training, have been through energy work training, have been through somatic psychotherapy training, and um, many of us, including myself, or not many, but a number of us, you know, have chosen not to be licensed for a number of reasons, mostly so we can put our hands on people, so we can um, do have more uh, options. And so, I guess my question for you is, how do you see the role for those of us who, you know, have specifically chosen not to be licensed to collaborate with people who are have focused very much on being more a part of the system and the
1: thank you um the, the player provides literally when that one item that i didn't remember was actually talking about underground work <laughs> so um thank you very much and uh, i actually I'm just try to think if this would impact my licensing but i don't think it does i
2: i i, I and
1: rick and i think a lot of the maps folks are supportive of underground therapists um you know in talking about the cost of this care again it's absurd if, if we're going to charge five or six hundred dollars an hour to pay for a therapist care to do 60 hours of clinical work um it, it's unfeasible um, and you know i know rick would say you know really we have, we're thankful to this underground therapists that have done the works even since before these with these uh substances were, were made illegal um there's tons that i have learned and that underground therapists have shared with uh licensed therapists thankfully that have been doing the work really if all we had was the the people who had worked with the legal um the the legal trials like we would really be a lot more behind than we already are so i, I actually think that it, it's great to have um you know well-trained underground therapists doing this work i think they're going to provide a different niche a different type of um you know, a, a different avenue so i'm I'm not i'm not saying even again as a western psychiatrist i think i've driven this point home hopefully but but i'm not a massive fan of western medicine and i don't think it, i think it's going to be a way of providing psychedelic medicine healing work i do not think it is the only way to do psychedelic healing um, i will also say that i think getting therapist training does not equal being able to provide good psychedelic healing um, and being able to hold space for someone um, and i also think that doing lots of psychedelics going to festivals to burning Man, and being an underground therapist doesn't equal being able to do good healing either You know, I, it's kind of interesting because I, I kind of hold this space between you know, the, the hippie festival, burning man crowd, and I'm also a Western trained psychiatrist. And, you know, basically I'm kind of saying like no one has it right, and, um, you know, and really it's a combination, and you'll find people within every community that can provide really good healing work, I think. But do you think there's a,
2: do you think there's a role for unlicensed practitioners in clinic
1: For un, oh, so I think legally, for instance, uh, you know, you know, I, I, don't do underground work. I think, especially early on, you know, I'm 38. In terms of opening a legal psychedelic clinic, would I allow an underground therapist to work with me? Honestly, probably not. And I'm not just saying that because I'm on camera. The reality is, you know, I think I, I do really good work. I do it with integrity. I have big plans for what I want to do. It's a massive risk to be able. I mean, if if I open one of say three, four clinics in New York City within the next couple of years of providing MDMA therapy, and I get caught you know, working with someone who's done the underground work, I, I think I would really, you know, just make, this stuff would make the press. We would get these clinics shut down, and, you know, I think we have to be very careful about what's out there right now just because, um, you know, uh, I think we still are at a, a, a timid time. And, you know, we, we can see who's in politics and who's in office right now, and all they need is, like, one little excuse to really, you know, slow down or shut this stuff down again. So it would not come from a, a personal space of not wanting to work with underground therapists. It would be more, from my end, just um yeah, putting things at risk
2: yeah.
1: please yeah yeah
2: um, so i guess i'm curious you know in a doctor's office let's say there are different levels of people in the office working you know um, with a certain kind of practitioner that can give a shot or you know what i'm saying so i guess what i'm asking is is there a way to legally have people who have been extensively trained in you know, all these different aspects of what goes into the healing process that could really round out the psychiatrist, like the psychiatrist perspective that could legally somehow be collaborated. Yes, I have
1: one, I uh, I hesitate to share this because I'm in the process of opening my own clinic and not an MDMA clinic, but a ketamine clinic. Um, again, I, I do my solo practice right now with ketamine, but well, if, if someone steals this idea, I actually think it's a good one because I think it's gonna provide better care. So one of my ideas, so, so there's four ways of. Everyone realizes that ketamine is legal, and um, it, we can provide this right now, right? Um, it, it's a prescribable medicine. There's four ways of administering ketamine um, currently that that are used relatively regularly within the psychedelic um, healing you know community and and non psychedelic, right? This really started from anesthesiologists using this and people being observed getting better after taking ketamine for a procedure. Um, So, you know, the major ketamine work that's being done out in the Western world right now is through um, ID clinics, so mostly anesthesiologists and non-psychiatrists that have, I mean, some of them are probably really well-intentioned places, but some of them we call ketamine mills, where you have an anesthesiologist that you never actually see, um, and you have You know a nurse that's there full-time they're essentially having six you know six people getting iv infusions with ketamine and you know new york city is anywhere from 750 to uh, 1250 a pop for about 90 minutes of an iv session um and this doctor is making a ton of money if you haven't done that back and so that's one way that ketamine is administered the other way is through an im so like a an intramuscular injection just like a, a shot where it stays in for a certain amount of time You have ketamine lozenges, which are dissolvable in the mouth. Um, Depending on the dose, you can have kind of the peak come up and down also for about 90 minutes to two hours. And the last way is uh, is a nasal spray. One of the ways around, and so there's the the different administrations, especially the IV route, essentially always has to be done with a medical practitioner because I'm not prescribing IV bottled ketamine in liquid. I hold it in my office. I administer it. But the rest of them, the nasal spray, the lozenge, and also the IM, I think, I might be wrong on the intramuscular injection. It's written as a prescription, it's not picked up at CVS, you have to get it from like a compounding pharmacy, but the patient goes home and takes it. So one of my ideas is to actually then work with unlicensed people, Um this is where I was like, I, I, yeah, there's enough to go around, but the reality is right, I can then, in, in theory, prescribe this to a group of people who I think, again, who I've done a background check and not background check like a legal one, but you know, I, I know that ketamine is not contraindicated. They work with me. They do have to come into a session with me, um, and then I can provide them a prescription. Then perhaps they're now working with an unlicensed person because once they have the medicine, it's there, It's no longer on my license. So if they wanted to take it to a um, unlicensed person, that works really well. Again, they can, they would have to see me for the first time, and you know maybe one or two sessions. You know one or two times I would have to check in on them. They would have to come pay me my normal fee. But, you know, if, if I'm writing it for them and they choose to go take it to a non-licensed person and pay them $100 an hour, that's a hell of a lot cheaper than coming to me for another person. That is an idea I have. So yeah, thanks for clarifying, because I think it's an important thing. so So, you know, what city do you live in? Um, in Oakland. In Oakland, I mean, there's plenty of uh, of MDs writing prescriptions for kind in Oakland, so that's potentially something we may be already doing this. But, uh, <laughs> you know, that's an idea that I have that I'm trying to spread a little bit. to be a way to get more for, Yes.
2: Like,
1: Yes. You're, you're reading? up no, this is good. I, I shouldn't try to hide anything. Again, there's, there's plenty of resources to go around. The other thing that I'm excited about in terms of doing this is that we can, per, we can have communities in New York City, in San Francisco, et cetera, with underground therapists um, and legal therapists that get together and talk about their cases, right? Because it's interesting, like, you know, if, this is now more my scientist brain thinking. Are you know, certain, um, what we call diagnoses or illnesses more or less apt to um respond to ketamine versus MDMA versus uh you know, psilocybin when that becomes legal I think pro- we probably will find that different medicines will respond differently to different uh sorry different illnesses will respond to different medicine and by building kind of a network of underground and above ground therapists who have experience with these people can say hey I mostly work with um, PTSD victims of sexual abuse who dissociate and my experience with this group of people um, with ketamine is this, which is, you know, ketamine is a dissociative, maybe that'll turn out to be something really good. Or my experience with working with um, people with chronic pain with MDMA, actually I find that that makes them worse and they become more addicted. But when I work with them with psilocybin, that actually really, really helps. And so, you know, because right now we're really thinking, let's just legalize, let's reschedule. I think as these things become more and more used, we're going to find that these subtle differences and it, it's exciting. Um, to, kind of be able to now be thinking about
3: how do they, how do we differentiate between the different medicines and different diagnoses? Hey, thanks. Um, kind of a follow-up question, uh, a little bit of a modification. Uh, this is kind of more towards the business model angle because when I heard that question, I was thinking, okay, well, you know, maybe you touched on Sorry. Uh It seems like it would be an opportunity for offering a, a holistic variety of treatments, some which require licensing, some which don't, and they could extend, you know, the relationship with a patient and treat them over a much longer period of time for a larger set of, um, you know, conditions. Um, and, and I don't mean to put it, necessarily frame it in the, like, uh, illness, you know, because it could also be, like, wellness or enhancement.
1: Absolutely. I'm glad you said that. And again,
3: that's why I hesitate when I say illness diagnosis,
1: because I'm not a, I mean, I'm not a psychiatrist who believes that, you know, certain things, PTSD, depression, is some genetic thing that you're born with and you won't have the rest of your life. You know, my view on, on what we call illness is that because of someone's genetic makeup because of some that combination of genetic makeup and environment they have a psychological stressor that leads to something that we have now called major depression or ptsd or you know alcoholism and that we will you know that through healing that the psychological aspect we can probably get rid of most things um but again that's not the world the, the view of most psychiatrists that you'll meet um but you're you're, you're it's interesting what you're saying and i 100 think that uh, this is the way i want to run i almost want to have like a wellness center uh, uh holistic practice because yeah, I know that I cannot provide everything for everyone. I can learn by working with other healers. You know, I, again, I, I am up here, but I don't, you know, I think there's probably plenty of people who have no licensing whatsoever who can probably talk about this more intelligently than I can. I just happen to be there in part because I am an MD. Um, but really, you know, I think that, that working with other practitioners, you know, it's gonna be great. Maybe we can have some people that come in who are asking for, MDMA healing, but really what might actually work better for them is to work with a body worker and um, over the course of time, like you're saying, um, and that, that might
3: even be little better for them, so
1: Yeah, in addition, absolutely,
3: um, yeah, <laughs> completely agree. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Uh, that's been very informative. My uh, question to you is uh, sort of twofold. Number one is, can you talk about any of your personal experiences within these trials with complex PTSD and MDMA, and uh, some of the numbers we hear out of maps are extremely reassuring in treating PTSD. So my thoughts are, with some of these tougher cases, are you seeing a difference in those responders versus like one incident versus serial incidents that might be experienced in veterans in war?
1: Um, You're talking about, sort of, kind of uh, how bad someone has PTSD or trauma and how they respond to um, MDMA therapy? Yeah, correct. Yeah, correct. Yeah. So it's an interesting question because, again, there there is an entity that, I don't know if it's a DSM diagnosis, whether it's actually called complex PTSD. There is something that we definitely write about as a field and we call complex PTSD or, um, again, we're, you know, anytime in, in the Western world, uh, Western medicine, when we, we can't understand something, we kind of try to label it as something else, um, and so, again, uh, You know, dissociation or, or, you know, uh, derealization or a set of symptoms that come up with some people that have post-traumatic stress disorder, mostly, mostly sexual trauma, and we call that dissociative identity or blah, blah, blah. Again, I think it's useful sometimes to think about it this way, but I I don't like when the Western world uses it to categorize someone as in, this is what you are and I get you. Um, uh, I just think that we run ourselves into trouble when we do that. So, in terms of the data, I haven't seen, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist, that um, you, within the MAPS data someone has said this is complex PTSD versus normal PTSD. I do know that, you know, at least the first, um, the first studies, because, you know, the, I think that there's been treatment of over 100 people at this point uh, within the MDMA studies in recent times. Um, I know that especially at the beginning, the first trials were about treatment-resistant PTSD, so they were pretty bad PTSD. Which, which probably makes sense, because, right? It's not like someone with not bad PTSD would probably be signing up for this experimental study. So it was lucky in both ways because people with really bad PTSD were signing up for the studies and getting a whole lot better. So, um, you know, meaning I, I think that I would imagine that the data is about the same. I think last I heard it's around 65% because we're constantly getting more data, right? So it's around 65% after three MDMA treatments over three months with normal psychotherapy in between no longer have PTSD at the end of the trial, so three months out, and a lot of that holds even months or years out. There's been one study I think at four and a half years where essentially people that that benefit held, and it got actually a little bit better. Um, I can talk about it a little bit better if people are interested, uh, just ask why that might be. Um, So yeah, so I I would say there's there's a lot of uh, hope that this would be um, beneficial for people with more severe PTSD. I'll bring up another point, um, back to the, the, the people of color and racial trauma. So our, our site, like I said, is, is focused. It's not like formally, we don't have a separate study, but idealistically, we have chosen to focus on treating people of color with PTSD and race-based trauma, which are two separate things. Right? So, so racial trauma could be something like experiencing chronic racism over the course of one's life um, by like every single black American, honestly, and, and many other non-white Americans um that you know that we call microaggression that's like every single day you know interacting with someone on the street, a police officer etc where you're just feeling racist um, you know that, that something about you is, is being held against you that you know some of that can be associated with losing your life at times or at least having a threat against your life I mean I think even say being a black American and watching a black man on TV getting shot as he runs away from a police officer right even the diagnosis of PTSD is not an actual necessarily a, a life-threatening experience for yourself, but it's witnessing a life-threatening experience. Right? I mean, honestly, like, first time I saw one of those police videos, sadly I've become numb to it, but that was traumatizing. we was, like, just not being able to focus on anything else, feeling, like, shaking. I'm like, how the hell is this happening in the world right now? The reason I'm bringing this up is because, so, you know, say you can have a, a point trauma, and one of the problems with the DSM right now, the DSM, for those who don't know it, is a diagnostic the it's a cystic manual, something, I, I don't even memorize it as a psychiatrist because I actually don't, don't like it very much. But we've categorized illnesses and said, PTSD requires these three or four or five things. Major depression requires these three, four or five things. And really the DSM diagnosis of PTSD is based on very much a point trauma or a point set of trauma. It is a sexual assault. It is a your, your Humvee being blown up or you know three motorcycle accidents, but it's meant to be a point trauma. I think the reality is that we have the many of us have those traumas in our life, but we also have chronic traumas that happen every single day to us. I mean, we could even say that, say, physician training of working you know, 80 to 100 hours a week, really being in a verbally abusive environment while we do that, not getting sleep is traumatic in many ways, in a real emotional way. Um, you know, having a, a society where we're focused on capitalism and not getting sleep and working 80 hours a week at a bank on Wall Street is traumatizing. And then again, back to the people of color thing, that I really think, you know, there's a significant amount of racism that we can call traumatic that is has a physiological and psychological impact on certain people that should be labeled as trauma. I actually think that, say, if a lot of the people in the category that I was, categories that I was talking about have not had a point trauma, if you actually look at them, with the DSM may not fit the criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder, right? Because it may manifest differently than nightmares and flashbacks and um, hypersensitivity, right? And, but is it a trauma or is it not? Absolutely, it's a trauma, but it may not fit the definition of what we're calling post-traumatic stress disorder. Many problems with that, right? Funding, insurance-wise, funding from the VA, etc., honors the DSM diagnosis for something. So if you are having significant symptoms, but they don't meet the criteria for PTSD, you may not get certain benefits or certain uh, payments from insurance companies. The other thing is that I think about is in terms of treating, say, something I've talked about um, a lot with our group, uh, meaning at the University of Connecticut is race-based trauma. So yeah, and, and meaning, so if, you know, for example, in a, in a normal white participant in one of the PTSD studies, you know, we need to overall make sure that they're in a safe environment now, so that they're not in a physically abusive relationship at home for them to enter our study. Because if, if we're trying to treat a physical or sexual trauma that they've had 10 years ago that they're symptomatic now, but they have a partner or a boyfriend, or they're in a you know they're in a poor financial state, so they're having sex for money. Like they're essentially having trauma happen right now. So if, if we're trying to treat a trauma while someone is being traumatized, that's not going to really work good for a study, um, and it may not even cause uh, relief of the symptoms because they're still being traumatized. In, in you know, in our site specifically for racial trauma, you know, I, I do again. I'm a big believer, and I see a lot of heads nodding when I talk about um, you know really racism causing chronic trauma to, to people of color. And one of the things that I am concerned about um, is, so say that we have someone who's experienced uh, police shooting or witnessed a police shooting, um, say that's a black American, and we bring them into our site, we treat them with MDMA for PTSD if they meet criteria for PTSD, but we do a follow-up study. Say, say at 12 weeks, we, we cured them from their PTSD. But say if we do a six-month, a 12-month, or a five-year follow-up, and they have PTSD symptoms again, and they look like our therapy did not work for them. Um, Is it that they didn't do good work? Maybe, but it could also be that perhaps we sent them back out into an environment where the world is racist and traumatic so that we didn't really clear them of their PTSD. Um, You know, and and one of the things I worry about more um, kind of philosophically is, is, so I trained in Boston, again, at Harvard Medical School for my psychotherapy training, and I, worked a lot with the Boston Psychoanalytic Institute. I mean, I was like deep into this shit back then. I, I mean, I was like four days a week on the couch doing traditional psychoanalysis for myself. You know, it, you know psychoanalytic societies, the Freudian ones especially, um, are very much also a white uh, group of people. Um, and you know, I, I know from my experience in working with a lot of these therapists or working with a lot of these, um, these institutions, and I don't think these are bad people, but but you know I've, I've heard things said like you know you really need you know only certain patients do well in psychotherapy. You have to have a very reflective patient. You have to have a very have a very intelligent patient.
2: And, and they don't outright
1: say it, but no one will say that. Usually you know that this is like the wealthier white people. And I know there was people would be people that think oh because you're poor or because um you know you're from a certain ethnic background because you're an immigrant you're probably not made well to be a a psychoanalytic patient or a psychotherapy patient so say if all of a sudden our data say we do end up um our site has say all people of color as patients if if we don't do as well if our data isn't as good as the other sites are people going to say well you know maybe this just isn't a treatment that works well for people of color maybe they're not good patients versus saying maybe we need to honor that really we live in a racist country right now and that that they're not doing well because of other factors. Maybe they're not doing well, you know, we are doing pretty well at getting people in the door interested in the study, but people of color are also a lot poorer. So even if we can get them to meet the criteria for our study, can they take one day a week off for 12 weeks to do the study, including once a month for an entire day session, stay overnight and do another session in the morning You know, and take all that time off of work? Usually not. You know, and so we have a lot of barriers that we're working with right now um, to try to make this accessible to more people. So we do have like, I'm one of the Maps employees here, so I can, if we have any Maps related questions, we can ask Jade. Who walked in? Who has always has the most colorful outfits, whether we're at Burning Man or not? So, welcome, Jade. Yeah. I'm a licensed
3: therapist, and I
2: came in late, so this might be a repeat. But could you point toward
3: resources just to learn about what the therapeutic benefits of psychedelics? that are, are known, at, are known at this point.
1: Mm, um, Yeah, so you said you're a
3: licensed, what?
2: I'm a licensed clinical social worker. Cool. I work as a therapist. Awesome. Um, but I'm also pretty naive to all of those, so where would somebody like me need to get started learning more about what research does exist, mm-hmm. or what communities are publishing? or whatever.
1: Awesome. Um, yeah, so I mean, it's interesting. So, so things that I, I mean, certainly the MAPS website has, you know, studies and articles written about their their own studies um let's see uh chakruna is a uh mostly focused on plant healing one of my colleague, uh, colleagues via from uh, from brazil she publishes that with a lot of articles on there um those are the ones that i mean pubmed is something that we use in the medical community to look at, you know, at the data and a lot of the map studies have now been published on on pubmed but does anyone those are the major ones i think about is there anyone else that in terms of uh of well, well-controlled legitimate studies that we can look at or places that we can look for for the data for this work <laughs>
2: actually
1: i was about to mention stan so i'm glad you said that so yeah stan groff a lot of people may not know who he is so i'll mention him um uh, so he's an interesting guy he's a psychiatrist from the czech republic he's still alive which is pretty but i think he's in his 90s he was friends with albert hoffman uh, i think he's done a more Legal psych LSD therapy work than any human alive right now. Um, I think it's something like 5,000 LSD sessions, um, like before things became illegal. I think half were in the Czech Republic, half was in in Baltimore when he was recruited to the U.S. He's written this book, he's written many books that are excellent, but one of them is LSD psychotherapy, which I think, um, unfortunately, after long after he's dead, people are probably going to look at as probably a uh, the giant lion but uh i think it's going to literally become like a clinical manual for how to really do really great work i mean he splits it into like diagnoses and and, all sorts of beautiful beautiful things Uh, i think you know as a field we're going to be looking and really reading his book um uh to to really learn how to do this stuff because again we're we're basically you know reinventing the wheel in some ways with uh starting to do this again now, but there's many people that came before us that were that were doing great work. Anyone else have resources that you really like to use to stay up on the... Oh, like the, the Maps Bulletin and the list. No, so yeah, if you go to Maps, actually, they have uh, send out email lists, and Jake can sounds like she'll sign you up if you want, here. Um, and uh, that, that kind of really keeps up to date on the research. Uh,
2: I've been listening to all the podcasts that Maps put out, ah, yeah. and i found that um, by listening to podcasts, you get a lot of information, where to go for other stuff. Like, this is going to be on podcasts probably, from MAPS. Is it? So anyway, they've been really, really cool. successful. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and actually, I know
1: Bia Navada has now formally, at least been hired part-time by MAPS. She's going to be working a lot with increasing so, uh, things available on social media. Um, so she's going to be starting, like, a, a series of podcasts or videos with Brad Burge. Um, I only know this because I, like, I signed up to do one where they're going to be interviewing people that are involved in um, psychedelics or research um, and, and putting those up. So I think MAPS is going to be putting out a lot more cool content um, in the Sorry. near future. Yeah, absolutely. Anyone else? And we've got like 20 minutes but um, yeah, obviously feel free to go anytime, Or we can end it if no one has any more questions or comments. I'll pause stay for a bit. Well, before you get, we want the microphone I think to for the recording. Actually one thing that I will say because I had on uh, this the information about people of color so our the professor that works at our site who's in charge of it uh, monica williams who before her involvement in psychedelics was already a really well-known um uh, person working on on racial trauma and, and a faculty member we actually put out a recent publication within the last three four months or so that looked at all of the modern studies On legal psychedelic um, work and then did racial demographics on that population. And so she found that about 80% or so um, of the participants in the modern psychedelic study, meaning like probably 90s up until now, um, 80% were white. Um, Which actually, I mean, I think we could do better, but it doesn't sound horrible, but about 10% of people clicked, like they basically didn't give their racial information. So if we assume that 10% is about the same as the other, meaning 8% of that 10% were white, we're talking 88% of the participants are white. You know, which which again, we live, I, I tried to crunch numbers. I think I did like Latinos, Asians, and black Americans make up something like 40% of the United States. So you know, I mean, we're, we're nowhere near um, treating the, the population um,
3: yeah, that, that looks like, uh, like the population of America. Basically. Yes. I just want to ask about your experience with uncovering other mental illnesses or mental disease states during these trials, and have you ever come across patients with like, suppressed memories that come out during the MDMA use? Um, yeah,
1: so I don't know that data well, so I guess the way I hear your question is twofold. One, you're saying, are we? could we make stuff worse, or can we lead someone to having a psychosis or a bipolar like diagnosis or episode a- after treatment in one of those studies. I Again, I don't know the data that well. I don't think that that has happened, at least in the MDMA work, where we're causing someone to become psychotic for the first time or having a manic episode. Um, at least I don't know again, but I, I, I won't. Uh. But we also have a pretty extensive um, exclusion criteria. So an exclusion set of criteria in any study is saying if you have this or a history of this, you cannot participate in the study. Most access one illness, which um, the DSM means, uh, major depression, schizophrenia, uh, generalized anxiety, OCD, are a exclusion from our study. Uh, And so that perhaps prevents a lot um, of people from being involved, Uh, you know, certain, uh, all personality disorders to my knowledge are also an exclusion criteria. This is not to say that I think that MDMA or other psychedelics cannot be healing for persons with personality disorders. Um, I actually do think that there's a fair and good exclusion criteria for this study in particular. So the meaning that for a 12 week study will, where you have just met your therapist, will only see them for 12 weeks and basically give MDMA within three to four weeks of that, I, I actually think is not good for the participant. You know, something, you know, personality disorders, I think, are actually something that are going to be very responsive to psychedelic healing, especially MDMA, but the study and the process has to look different. I think it's going to be safe. You know, one thing that gets brought up often is about borderline personality. Um, should we give this, this set of patients MDMA? I was actually in one talk when I first started getting into the research world where actually one of our researchers, who I will not name, said something to the effect of you should never give patients with borderline this is like a public talk about five hundred people in it actually. You should never give patients with borderline personality disorder um, MDMA, and someone asked why, and he was like, "Well, if, you know, they have an, it could be an, you know they have an addictive personality. They're going to like the high. Let's never give it to them." I was I was floored, and I, Rick was actually at this talk, and we were both like, "What are you saying? Are you mad?" Essentially. Again, I'm not going to give any more details, then you'll probably find out who it is. But the reality is like, A, number one, you're, you're a mental health person, so you should know. I know that the DSM diagnosis for borderline personality, there's nothing about addiction in there. So it's absolutely absurd to say something like this. Number two, you know, and, and I think it's a, essentially, it's a fear of not being able to, understanding this patient and being able to help them. You know, I just think, absolutely, I think we can treat a lot of personality disorders with psychedelics. Again, it just has to look different. For some, something like borderline personality, I think it can be something like work with a therapist that you've already been working with for some amount of time that you have rapport with and maybe introduce MDMA or another psychedelic healing modality at month three or every three months instead of every four weeks, you know, because it can be a very intense experience to have MDMA or, um, or another psychedelic. So, you know, I I just think it has to happen over more time with a therapist or therapist that you've gotten to know a lot better. Um, so yeah, so that's about kind of uh, unmasking other things. Or, you know, I think it can cause problems in, in certain patients in the short term and I think because of that, they just need a different container or a different setting, um, a certain setting to to really have more effect.
3: So, okay, let me turn it to the sort of question of replicability. Um, replicability? Yeah, okay. so you're, you're building your clinic uh, right now around uh, ketamine treatment in New York, if I heard correctly, yes? Mm-hmm. Um, and I understand Mass; it has a real interest in spreading these clinics out around um, as far as they can, you know, as far yeah. as it could be. Yeah, I think the, um, the galaxy within ten years is what Rick is shooting for. We'll go bigger. Yeah, <laughs> um, you know, uh, I'm wondering somewhat about the practical considerations, like in, in the setting up your clinic. um You know, are you going for outside investors? What kind of investors are you seeking? How are you structuring the, the company? Uh, how are you handling liability? Um, you know, because these these are the things that. That if you know the the problems that can be solved, if they solve problems and that information can be transferred, that helps replication. Yeah, um, great question. So um,
1: there's multiple issues in there, I guess that, I, that I've thought about. One is this issue of liability, right? Because my, I mean, malpractice for a psychiatrist I think is probably the cheapest of every of any physician. I think my malpractice right now is like. I think it's like 300 dollars a month um so like three or four grand a year um and that's expensive because it's new york when i was in boston my pra- like like uh practice is practice like 150 dollars a month um but i know for an lbgyn that's like 70 or 80 thousand dollars a year so it's relatively low but that's just for me as a solo practitioner um, for at least the ketamine work i'm not that concerned with it because again i can prescribe ketamine at least in the lozenge and the nasal spray forms where a person can take it home they're picking it up from a uh, pharmacy, I haven't actually talked to a lawyer, I will at some point soon, but then I think that's out of my hands, unless I'm bringing them in and doing it in my office, I think there's probably some liability there. Um, but if they, again, were to take it to an underground therapist, and, and I wanna make it clear that I'm not saying, and I, I'm not gonna be telling people, I'm giving you this and go to this underground therapist, that would not be okay on my part, so this you because there's a video here, I'm not saying that. Uh, but what I'm saying is uh, that, that I think that that's totally doable. Um, you know, with the MDMA uh, expanded access clinics and beyond, if people are doing that in-house, I have another therapist that I'm working with, I, I think I will carry much more of the liability and I think I will have to let my um, malpractice insurance know and they probably will uh, charge me. Or say, if I have people working with these participants, say in the mean where they are coming into a space that's physically mine and say, I'm not there, I think I will also have to deal with more liability there. Um, and
2: replicability
1: is an interesting one right like so, you know i am a physician i'm a scientist i'm a faculty member right now i do honor that um that western medicine and research is valuable um you know meaning like a lot of the stuff that we're talking about right now and the successes maps have been to be doing this in a legal realm where we're sharing data and, uh, so and cool, i think there's cool stuff that you know that there's that's going to continue to some extent and i think it's helpful to a large yeah, extent um you know, but I also think that there's lots of limits in terms of the, the cost of some of these studies is tremendous, right? And, and it tends to be slow. Academics are very slow publications. Essentially, if you're on PubMed, again, this is our Google for for medical research, and you're Googling about studies, they're essentially published about a year or more after they've even been done. So you're never really up to date if you're only looking at the medical research. Um, so that's an issue. And again, just the cost of it. So, you know, if I were to run some sort of study within my in a private clinic, to put the effort to have that out there and, and in an academic form is going to be expensive, it's going to be time consuming. When I was talking earlier about perhaps that we can have more collaborations with licensed and unlicensed therapists that are going to come in and say just have informal you know, discussions about this is what I'm finding with my patients, et cetera. it can be helpful to share information. This is obviously not going to be anything that we can publish or hold on, but I do think that this stuff is real. You know, I think. Western medicine and publications, again, are very helpful, but they're also limited. Um, and I think they're also based on a Western philosophy of, I need to see it to believe it. You know, again, uh, in, in Eastern philosophy and Eastern practices don't really follow that way. It's about knowing or feeling something and not knowing it. And I think you become, you come away from, from feeling and being, you know, feeling sure that something is right and having to have evidence. Some of this stuff is a waste of money. Yeah, some of these long, long-term long studies. And what, the one I was thinking about and talking to someone about today is like, it was a Harvard study that uh, forward, is, con- is ongoing. It's a 70-year really? study. I think it's like one of the that's, oldest yeah, research that's studies that's ever, where like 70 year. years ago, they took a group of Harvard men. It was um, a very and sexist environment. Degree, it still is a like very sexist world that we live in. And then they followed them long term so, over the course of their life, dead. they followed their children. Um, Adoles, a guy that I, was uh, one of our uh, teachers at, at Harvard Medical School, yeah. Bob Waldinger, he had some press I'm actually, right um, he took a year off to kind about this in a TED talk he did,
0: where he basically said, after
1: 70 years of the study, the one thing that correlated with happiness is <laughs> The, the quality of your interpersonal relationships. And he's really he did this really good TED talk and he's being on tour and wrote a book and he's become famous, but I'm like, I mean, I think it's great that he did this, but the reality is, I don't think I needed anyone to do a study and spend millions and millions, millions of dollars on something like that, right? I mean, like, we should know as human beings that connection and love, etc., is what we need. I mean, that's why, I mean, again, this is with the crowd I need to probably convince of that, right? But again, you know, they've done, well, not, again, I'm part like of this, so Western medicine, well, you know, stress yeah. increases the chance of someone with uh, heart spank disease spank to that. have a heart attack. Great that you studied that, but we didn't, we didn't we need to do, step again, step a very expensive good. study over the course of time to tell us that. Yeah, there's certain things where I think Western yeah, medicine is going to play a role, okay. and, and some of these studies that are more obvious, I think, they're more of just like, I think it's going to be uh, great to share some of this information and have universities still doing it. Um, But I've
3: become a little more of a believer in just learning from my patients and my experience with patients. Are are there things that you would recommend and what someone should look for at a ketamine clinic? Because right now, like the marketplace is, it seems really scary and uh, fly by night. Um, So I'm wondering what what you would
1: suggest. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up. Actually, ketamine, I I, I honestly discovered ketamine in my personal and private um, life, really, uh, again, not private legal illegal, kind of um, but, but you know, I just just personally, I, I've done a legal second LA, uh, sorry, legal ketamine infusion myself. So that's what I'm going to do. Um, but even, I, before three or four months ago, I was actually not just anti, I, I was a little scared of ketamine, honestly, because I'm pretty new to the, the Burner Festival scene. Actually, Burning Man two years ago was the first time I ever even heard of ketamine being used. And, you know, it, it, it there was a lot of like problematic stuff that that seemed to come up. You know, people that seemed to be more you know that we would call addicted or had issues currently or in the past with opiates. Just to where I was like a little bit scared of it. Um, but then in the last few months, it's really blown my mind how healing ketamine can be. And that's when I was like, okay, hey, I've got to get on this because this is really again, it's got a lot of benefit, shorter acting, um, cheaper than than you know a full day of MDMA therapy. That said, you know, I I've, I've now started really looking into it. I think in New York, like most cities, most of these ketamine practices are ketamine infusion clinics run by non-mental health providers that are essentially providing ketamine infusions. Um, I think the set and setting, they tend to be like you know, white walls. It's a very medical-like facility. And I actually, I'm not saying that infusions are not beneficial. I just think it's different than doing ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, which is what I do. I think ketamine infusions can be very helpful to get someone out of a depression, a suicidal state, which we actually have no alternative to that. So, ketamine has its role. My frustration, with ketamine at times, is that you know you're, you know. So, people I think can come off of uh, antidepressants by getting regular infusion, which I think is good overall. You know, but I also think it's unlike MDMA or other healing, where we could potentially get people off of them much more long term, perhaps oh you know forever. Um, and. So yeah, I, I think it's better, but I think we can do even better. So that's why uh, you know I'm really focused on doing ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, um, and, or working with therapists that are doing that, because I do think it's more of a long-term solution. Um, but you know, I also honor that you know we need ketamine infusion clinics. I think because there are people that can't afford the long-term therapy, they don't have the time, if they have family, if they have certain jobs, and perhaps some people just don't want to do therapy. And I, I don't think everyone should have to do that. Either. And if that say down the road a year or two they want to do psychotherapy, then they have that option. Um, you know, so I, th- I think ketamine. That's, that's kind of what I would think. If you want to do you know, ketamine psychotherapy, find practitioners that know, what, you know, really how to work with this. And I, and I don't know a lot of people that are doing really good ketamine psychotherapy work. I, I mean, I do know some; those do exist. Um, I think Marcela, one of our map therapists, Scott Shannon, both in the, the Boulder um, area, do excellent work. You know, I'm just saying, like as a whole in the country, there aren't a ton of people doing ketamine psychotherapy. You know, and I think whether it's MDMA or ketamine assisted therapy. I actually like to refer to it as psychotherapy assisted by MDMA or psychotherapy assisted by ketamine because it's the, it's the psychotherapy that's doing the healing work. Um, and you know, again, I don't know if I can really convince you guys that but you know plenty of people doing psychedelics that aren't being healed. Um, so I think that, yeah. Uh, actually, I also want to say that I, I do think healing work can be done with psychedelics outside of psychotherapy. I just think that those chances are much higher of having that happen if it's combined with psychotherapy.
2: All right. Thanks for listening. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time.
0: Well, uh, now that you've heard some of these ideas, my suggestion is for you to go to the program notes for this podcast, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.com, and click on the link for the Eric Davis essay that is titled Capitalism on Psychedelics. The Mainstreaming of an Underground. Uh, And if you read that, you'll get yet another take on this issue. And then you can join us for the Psychedelic Salon Live, where you'll have a chance to join in this conversation and to ask questions of Dr. David Nichols, should you so desire. And to do so, of course, you'll need to first subscribe as a supporter of mine on Patreon. And that link is on the program notes page as well. Each week, all of my supporters there receive personal invites with links to the live salon, so pledging $1 a month will get you into the live salon and, uh, well, a few other things as well. And since no one on Patreon is charged until the last day of the month, you can sign up by pledging $1, and then you can cancel your pledge before the end of the month. (laughs) So give it a try for a month and see how you like it. I'll have more to say about the Salon 3.0 on Patreon in future podcasts, But that should be enough for today. So, for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.